writing on this subject. Every one of us he says, most possesses. Controversies between leaders you receive and a new supply of it fresh every day. But, due to but you never seem to have enough it. human You can save it, or you can invest it. Personality clashes. You can spend it. The real it. root of many church problems, or you can lose it, lies in a lamentable immaturity. And when it's gone, you can never get it back again. Right. Everybody know what I'm talking so about? Right. So right. Her first time. That's exactly says, right. Suffers. They're speaking long. of time. Do you ever think first about Peter this fact? This fact. Four, verse eight. Says sometimes torment is a multitude of what? So let me share it with you, and you can be tormented with me. Appreciate them. Did you ever think about the well, fact that the most productive person, very highly, super and the most unproductive person in the whole in wide world, in the history These are the of the world, all have Why? the same allotment of what? Verse, middle of the verse. Time. Because of their work. Time. Because of their work. Not because they're just It's not guys. that we need more time. It doesn't really matter. The issue really is, is what we do with the... The issue time is understanding have, of authority. The issue is what we do at the time we have. Understanding I want to speak to you tonight as we close down this series on biblical leadership. I want to talk to you tonight about the sacrifices that a leader in God's in church is required church, to make. Honor is not given to sacrifices people because of any qualities that they may possess due to birth or social and status or natural gifts. Members of but that only local on the basis congregation of the should be relating to its leadership. We so I want to talk about their the sacrifices of leadership, and I want to talk about the, the relationship between leaders and the led, if you will have it that way. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to graze there tonight for most of this evening. Live in peace. Although we will look at briefly at a couple of other passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me just another. set a little bit of context for you. As so we parachute here at the end of a, an epistle, we are to Paul and his missionary colleagues, peace, according peace to Acts chapter 17, arrived in Thessalonica to establish peace, a church, one another, which they yeah, one did with each other. But the opposition peace was so fierce. So hostile the to the missionary church planting endeavor that they were about that they were rapidly driven from the city. It's ugly. Several months later, like after they had left, the, uh, the, the Apostle Paul could stand it no longer. And so he sent church. Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out what had and gone on. This was a fledgling church plant. This has been a and the great apostle who would have preferred to spend much more time there and, and disciple and mature this young church was unable to do so. And when he, he just couldn't stand to think about what might be happening to them. So he sent Timothy back to find out what was going on. Look over in chapter 3. Paul speaks of that for us. Chapter 3 and verse 1. He but says, therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. God promises real rewards. He sent Timothy back. God promises real rewards. I sort of tacked this on Timothy the Timothy checked on the, the church there, undoubtedly performed so some there. pastoral functions. Violence. Going through the issue in his time that he was there, and then he caught up with the apostle in Corinth. Not deal with it. And there, Paul in Corinth was desperately waiting to hear what the news would be from this fledgling church in Thessalonica. And when Timothy came and reported that not only had the church survived 
But look over to chapter 1, verse 7. It says, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Beloved, there are only two provinces in, in Greece. For the hard work. Macedonia and Achaia. So here, first, temporary What Paul is saying that Chapter 3, verse 13. Is this fledgling church for those who have, have become well an example through themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith really that is in Christ amazing. Jesus? Amazing. Now, by the way, he's speaking to deacons here, but the context of chapter 3 is elders say. and then deacons, and, and there's a lot of crossover. It is the grace of God and, here in this church. So I don't church. think I'm out of bounds to say that although he's speaking directly to deacons, <coughs> there is application to elders And there is such well. a love relationship a, a between the apostle and the church at Thessalonica. This is just a marvelous epistle. What is it? It's kind of a two-fold The Koinonia Fellowship Group is going through this epistle here. together, and I wish I was sitting in on themselves a high standing. this book. NIV, a good standing or an honorable But here in chapter 5, where we want a grace tonight... The word is bakmos in the Greek. We're going to be looking at verses 12 and, and it, 13. And it can refer to a step in a staircase. Now, we don't know whether so there were elders speak sometimes per se officially or grade. in the church at Thessalonica. We just, we just don't know. And so some commentators... We do know that it was Paul's practice, Acts chapter 14, verse 23, the right? Here into this the end of his passage. first missionary journey, which was the shortest of his they, three they journeys. Say that verse 13 when he looked back deacon, around to those churches, deacon, it says hey, in Acts 14 job as a deacon, that he appointed elders in every church. One of these days and you'll get to so we know elder. it was That's Paul's practice to do so. Read out of the verse. Whether Timothy in his time back there appointed elders deacons or not, are stepping know. stones to elders. So we don't really know whether here verses 12 and 13 are speaking specifically of elders of or not. The people of God. But whether they are official elders it's not a promotion, or whether they are merely a group of men providing spiritual oversight fact, to this was, congregation, think of me on this, it would sort the of be point is still to be a deacon then, wouldn't it? The lessons I mean, you know, you can for us team and are still good. Saying, you can come up to the majors. And what kind of, what kind of so we look at this text tonight? is that? And a couple of others. So I don't think he's talking about that at all. We're going to learn three vital lessons. What he's talking about here lessons. is that those three that have vital well lessons regarding biblical church high leadership. Standing, an honorable status among the community. So we will understand how to community. honor how to honor God in this system. area. In if our you own do ministry. a good job as a deacon, there are at least three things well we can learn as we look tonight. You'll be an Three honorable man. Three things that we'll learn that will be people readily you and applicable will respect you. right here. I mean, you'll be a man whose life meets these, these stringent characteristics here earlier on in this very chapter. First lesson. You'll be somebody to look up God to. God requires rigorous effort. But beyond that, God requires rigorous in the faith that is effort. in Christ Jesus on the part of You'll leaders. have a boldness or an openness or a confidence. The second lesson you. that we can learn tonight from this now, again, text is that God appeals for right relationships. You do your job as a deacon well. God appeals to the church through the apostle in speech for right relationships within speech. the fellowship. And then we will look, as I said, at a couple of other texts. And we There's will see that God promises real rewards for he those who faithfully serve the faith. You see that? In the role of leadership. There. There is no Tonight is primarily there. directed at is the leaders and the would-be leaders. The prepositional phrase of Foothill Bible Church. But in piste, in faith, is really there's also a significant translated. section that a high applies to great all of us in, faith in our relationship with those leaders. That's what it says. 
Look at verse 12. The article is missing here. But we so request of you, brethren, that again, you appreciate you really those who diligently labor among you level of confidence and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction be well thought of in and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Because why? Because Live you have been working with, with one the another. downtrodden very short. who are close to the heart very of God short and section, you will but see so God do amazing things. So packed with implications for us tonight. So let's begin. We're not going to work through this thing, you know, clause by clause. I'm going to rearrange the verses here a little bit and thematically look at it. So let's look first at the fact that God requires rigorous We do the job of an elder well. Our faith will grow too. You see it there in verse 12. He wants them to appreciate those who diligently labor among them. You see that? Kapiao is the Greek verb. The noun form of this verb is kapos, and it means labor, when we were or it means strenuous toil. Go through it really quick. The idea behind this four, verb. Speaking here directly, it's to labor elders, to the point of exhaustion. reward aspect. Now, please, what happens to me all too regularly on a Saturday when I have to do my household chores out in the hot sun? I'm not as strong or as vigorous as I once was, I guess. And so by about noontime of trimming bushes, cutting the lawn, pulling weeds, and, and you know, the three and so forth. I'm exhausted. It says, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive out. the unfading crown of glory. I am kapiao. I have been diligently laboring to the point of exhaustion comes in the yard. And so Christ I have to come in and have a returns. iced tea and put my feet up. <laughs> the word this appears. whole word when the chief springs from the life appears, of a manual labor. That verb is used over in chapter 1 and verse 20. Most of us don't know much about manual labor. His first agree? advents. Most of us are soft. What he's talking about here is his second You just look at our hands. His second coming. And you when can Christ tell comes, soft. there is rewards to be given out. a life of convenience. What kind of room? I mean, I don't regret being in a beautiful room like this with air conditioning when it's a hundred and something outside. Crown of glory. But most of the a, world doesn't meet this of way. Opposition. Do they? Right? What that means is that one noun explains Damn. the other. Not at all. So at all, you will receive an unfading crown, to these which is glory. We're soft. An unfading crown, which We're soft. is glory. And so it's lost on us a little bit. Eternal glory. This idea of heavenly glory. Kapiao of strenuously laboring. So for we peter out elders quickly. and. I think for deacons. Not many of us earn our living by the sweat of our brow. Pour yourself anymore, out. Do we? Give yourself to the point of exhaustion. But that's what's implicit among in God's this people. word. Just twenty-two times in the New Testament. Here and now. Fourteen of them by the Apostle Paul. By and when by. Paul grabs onto this word and uses Men, it, he uses it in a, a ministry context. That God has called it's always in a too. ministry context. And you know, Paul it could relate to this. Diligence on our part. It, is, Paul it requires was a, the exertion of ourselves. A bivocational church planter, no if we could use modern terminology, wasn't he? No How did he feed himself? Tomorrow. He was a tent maker. Do you know all the choice tent saints in Tents in those days were made of animal hides. Die young. It's hard work working in leather, yeah, you know John Calvin stitching pieces of leather together to make suffering tents. Suffering from intense migraine headaches. It's hard work. Yet the man and so the Apostle Paul understood hard work from a physical point of view, and he, he just scooped that up, that analogy, and he carried it over, and he said, this is the work of ministry, man. piled on top of. The work of ministry is kapiao. It is strenuous to the point of exhaustion. All the things I've gone to, and on top of this... There's Let's see this for a second. Church. Look at some references with me. 
Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Trace this theme just a little bit. Verse 10. Paul is speaking about his apostolic work here in Corinth. This is a relatively early epistle. In Paul's later epistles, by the way, he doesn't spend as much time defending his apostolic position. The early epistles is when it was being challenged. And so there's, there's frequently a defense of his apostolic position, as there is here in the first Corinthian epistle. It says, verse 9, I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, for I labored, there it is, even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. The apostle says, he labored more intensively than the other apostles. He poured himself out for the Gentile mission. Over to chapter 16, look at verse 16. I mean, will you support them? We're kind of sort of been a great... Maybe pick it up in 15 there. Now, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, and that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and the labors. The ministry is a work of labor. Will you see me? The analogy of it is Men hard physical hard. labor, labor that exhausts one. Responsibilities. Go to the right to uh, Galatians. Look at Galatians four, verse eleven. The path is clear. He's afraid here for the Galatian church. They're in danger of being easy. seduced away from the gospel, but back into a works-based religion. This Paul says in verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Perhaps I've labored over you by confessing our Father that we cannot do this. There is none of it. Just one more in Colossians, one of my favorite. If the Apostle Paul felt such intense, verse 28 29, how could we feel anything but? So, Lord God, we know it's not about us. It's about you. Paul speaks about his your work through us. priorities here. But Lord God, we and it says, and we proclaim Christ. him, admonishing every man and teaching Great. every man with all wisdom that we may present Thank every man complete in Christ. And for this the purpose unity. also I labor, the there's a word, striving yeah. according to his power which Lord, mightily works within me. Know that the evil one would it is a significant labor, a labor that, that brings exhaustion. And the pouring out of oneself as a leader among Protect us, Lord God. the people of God. That's what Teach the apostle calls for. To go back to First Thess 5. Bless us. Again, look, diligently labored. You see, among Please. you. Among you. Don't miss that. In Jesus' name. Amen. The work of a leader in the church of God is an among you work. First Peter 5, 2. Speaking directly to the elders there. It is the work of a shepherd in and amongst the sheep. It's not some ivory tower sort of job where you sit back and think a lot of lofty thoughts and then pontificate down from on high and tell people what they're supposed to do. It's a work in and among the people. In fact, beloved, that's what makes it so tiring. That's what makes it so wearying. Spiritual leadership is hard. It is stressful kind of work. 
Caring for the flock of God is an emotionally draining activity. It is time-consuming. It's frequently lonely, discouraging. Why? Because you're dealing with the effects of sin upon people. Sin is an ugly, ugly thing. Sin wants to murder us. And if it can't kill us, it will maim us. And so the work of spiritual leadership among the people of God is a, is a work among people who are devastated by the effect of sin. I mean, it shows itself in things like broken relationships between people, devastated families, gross and vile behaviors, destructive thought patterns. These are the things, these are the fruit of sin. And so to labor among people who are distressed and, and downcast and crushed with sin, which we all are, beloved. We are all touched by sin. Some more than others, but we are all touched by it. And so to work in that kind of an environment can be an emotionally draining type of work. Spiritual leadership is not an eight-to-five job. It's, it's a 24-7, I guess as they say it, right? Being an elder in the church is not a two- to three-hour-a-month commitment to come to some board meeting and make a few decisions on how to spend some money. That's, a, that's an insignificant part of what it's about. It's about people. It's about taking people to your heart and being among them and ministering to them. Sometimes, with no gratitude in return, no acknowledgement or appreciation ever expressed. There's burnout in that kind of labor. There is real burnout. It's a real issue. Particularly if you try to do it in the flesh. If you try to do ministry in your own strength, your own power, your own eloquence, you'll crash and burn. You can't help people's problem with sin. God alone can help that. But what you can do is you can minister the word to them. You can pray for them. You can be there for them. You can care about them. That's what you can do. I mean, what in the world would cause a man to want to sign up for something like that? It's a fair question, isn't it? What does Paul say in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1? It's the first qualification for an elder. What is it? You have to aspire to it. It's got to be something you want. It's the call of God. It is the call of God on your heart and your life. Woe to me if I do anything else. That's what it has to be. Now, what kind of rigorous labor is the apostle talking about? Look back at verse 12. There are really three participles here. A little Greek grammar for you. Three participles governed by one definite article. So what? Well, here's the so what. 
It's speaking about one group of individuals. Notice there in verse 12, those, this is how the English is trying to render the Greek here, those who diligently labor among you, it is a group of men. It is not one man. It is a group of men. Diligently laboring, if I want to put it into an English participle, and because it is a string of three participles governed by one definite article, what it means is that the other two participles define the first one. Diligently laboring among you. How? Here they are. Number one, having charge over you in the Lord. Number two, giving you instruction. That's how. Paul is defining the strenuous effort that's involved. And he's saying the strenuous effort that this group of men is making among the Thessalonians is that they are leading them and they are instructing them. That's what it's about. So first, let's look at leading. New American Standard translates this for us. Have charge over you. Have charge over you. Prohiste me. Love that Greek verb. It's Paul's favorite too, by the way. It's used Romans 12, 8, 1 Timothy 3, 4, 5, 12, 17, Titus 3, verses 8 and 14. It's a, it's a leadership verb. It speaks of spiritual leadership. Prohistemi, pro before, histemi to stand. To stand before the congregation. That's the translation I like of it. It means to stand before. It's used of a father in his home. He must be able to prohistemi his home. He must be able to stand well before his home. So these people are leaders, leading type people. That's who Paul's talking about here. Their diligent labor is the labor of leading, a labor of example, a labor of a life lived well, life on life with other people. Again, we bring so much English culture and tradition into the concept of leading, right? We think of leading like George Patton. You go there and you go there. But it's a different kind of lead. New Testament leading is a shepherd leading. A shepherd doesn't drive the sheep. A shepherd what? Leads the sheep and the sheep follow, don't they? The shepherd's out front, not behind. You drive cattle. You lead sheep. So it's a, a leading ministry. Diligently labor among you and lead you in the Lord. This is the sphere of an elder's leadership. It is the sphere of spiritual matters. The idea is that the elders are involved in the leading of the congregation in those things that relate to spiritual matters. What do I mean by that, practically speaking? Well, what I mean by that is that it's not the business of the elders what car you drive. It's not the business of the elders what home you live in. Or where you live. Or whether you own your home or whether you rent your home. Or where you work. I mean, all of those kinds of things are not elder-related issues. Now, there may be spiritual principle involved behind some of it where counsel could be given if sought. 
But when elders overreach, that's when they become authoritarian, see? And that's when they've stepped outside of what God would have for them. They lead inside the church. But the church is not their kingdom. And the members of the fellowship are not their subjects. I mean, think about it this way. It's very possible that inside the church, there is an elder who is in a leadership capacity among the people of God, maybe has someone to whom he is is responsible in a fellowship group type situation, who on the outside, that other person is his boss. I mean, couldn't that happen? Sure it could. Sure it could. So we just need to make sure that we understand where Paul is drawing these lines. The diligent labor that Paul is talking about is, is labor of leading within the church. It's the first explanation of the diligent labor. The second explanation is, is a ministry of admonishing. Translated here, give you instruction. Although if you look over in your notes to the side, if you have the New American Standard, it will also say admonition. Nutheteo is the Greek verb for us here. We get the, the concept nuthetic counseling from this verb. It's translated, frequently translated to admonish. I like it better than give you instruction. I think in our day and age, give you instruction has the idea of just imparting content to you in a take it or leave it sort of environment. And that's not what Paul's talking about. The elders don't give instruction in a take it or leave it. Okay, here's the Bible facts. You can do what you want with them. No, instead they admonish. And what the verb means, strictly speaking, is to, is to place something within somebody's mind or understanding. It's to, it's to stick it inside their head so that they'll do something with it. Inherent in this verb, nutheteo, or admonish, is the notion of calling to somebody's attention their faults or their defects. It's to remind people of the dangers that they face if they continue on the course that they're presently traveling. It means to affix blame. It carries the idea of correction. Now, lest we get too carried away, it's also a relationship-oriented verb. And we bring correction, we bring instruction, we, we correct their faults, we call their shortcomings to their attention, but we don't do it in such a way that we want to provoke them to wrath or to embitter them against ourselves or the, or the Lord. It is a relational kind of word. It, it carries the idea of the advice of a big brother or maybe of a father to his older children. In fact, Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14. And we can see it there. Our verb appears here, verse 14. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. If there was ever a church that needed admonition, this was the church. And so look how Paul treats them. 
He says in verse 14 of, of chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Do you see that? There is a, a fatherly kind of relationship here. These are the things a father does for his children. He points out his faults, their faults, to his children for the purpose of them correcting those faults and getting back on the narrow way. And a father doesn't do it to harass his children. He doesn't do it to provoke his children. He doesn't do it to crush their spirit. He does it because he loves them. He cares about them. And he wants them to walk for God. Now, I don't know about you, but it's difficult to admonish people correctly. And I, I think it's difficult because it's inherently distasteful. It's easy to go too far and stray over into harshness or authoritarianism. It's also hard because, and, and here I'm speaking for myself, but I think I can connect with many, there is this dread of confrontation that's always there. I mean, I, for me, I get a knot in the pit of my stomach. I just don't like it. I think ahead, you know, what are they going to say? And, oh, they're going to get mad at me or, you know, or whatever. I just don't like doing that kind of stuff. I think it's inherently distasteful to admonish. And I just confess, even with my own children, I don't like to do it. But you do what you have to do, don't you? I mean, the fun thing is to stand up and dispense Bible knowledge. That's fun. That's why teaching at FIT is so much fun. That's why those guys drive 70 miles each way to teach every week. It's not for the money, I can guarantee you. It's because they can teach and they don't have any of the problems. The problems are all ours. They just dispense Bible knowledge, teach theology. That's fun. That's fun. The agonizing part is to admonish people using that Bible knowledge. That's when it hurts. That's when it leads you to exhaustion. Let me read you a quote here from a theologian of the late 19th century and rolling over into the early 20th. His name was James Denny. He says, we are certain to bring a good deal of the world into the church without knowing it. We are certain to have instincts, habits, dispositions, associates perhaps, and likings which are hostile to the Christian type of character. And it is this which makes admonition indispensable. But we should remember that as Christians we are pledged to a course of life which is not in all ways natural to a spirit and conduct of life which are incompatible with pride, to a seriousness of purpose, to a loftiness and purity of aim, which may all be lost through willfulness. And we should love and honor those who put their experience at our service and warn us when, in lightness of heart, we are on the way to make shipwreck of our life. They do not admonish us because they like it, but because they love us and would save us from harm. And love is the only recompense for such service. When the shepherds of the church of God fail to admonish his people, perhaps out of 
fear that they'll get mad and leave the church, right? Or maybe they'll stop putting money in the offering plate or some other fleshly kind of fear. When that happens, then the shepherds of the flock of God go from being shepherds to hirelings. They go to be hirelings. In John 10, Jesus speaks of what it means to be a shepherd. Listen to what he says in verses 11 through 13 of John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. For the elders, for the spiritual leaders of the church to refrain from the hard work that God mandates, the hard work of leading and admonishing the people of God because of fear of consequence, then they've moved from being shepherds to hirelings, and they're worthless. They're worthless. So the first lesson that we can can take from this text with us tonight is that God requires a rigorous effort on the part of the leaders. Second, God appeals for right relationships. He appeals to the congregation for right relationships. And it's, and it's characterized here in these verses by three different words. First word is appreciation. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who kapiao among you. Paul starts with a request. God speaking through Paul with a request. This is, this is not an apostolic command. This is a request. This is an urgent appeal from a friend to a friend. There is a relationship going on here between the apostle and the church. And, and so he entreats them. Notice he uses the word brethren. You see it? This is a very, very relational kind of statement here. And, and he relates to them and he says, guys, gals, folks, this is what you've got to do. You, you need to appreciate the people who are laboring among you. You need to appreciate them. Now, the verb here is notoriously difficult to translate. You may see, you may see it in your margin as no. In fact, if you have King James, it's translated that way, I believe, as, as to know. The New King James is translated as recognize. NIV calls it respect. NASB says appreciate. There are two Greek verbs to know, and, and this one has the idea of knowing by means of reflection. Knowing something because you have reflected upon it. You've thought about it. You've sort of weighed the implications of it all. In this context here, I think the New American Standard correctly picks up the idea of appreciate. We appreciate those things that we believe are valuable to us, don't we? Isn't that how we appreciate something, it's, it's become valuable. I remember growing up, my father always said that if you worked for something, you'd appreciate it, right? Probably you fathers, you've all said it, and the rest of you have all heard it. There's sort of a value attached to it 
based upon the hard work that went into it. And as you sort of reflected upon it, 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 it gives you a level of appreciation. And so I think that's what the apostle is communicating here. I think, the, I think the translators have the sense of the word right. Is that there is a, there's an urgent request here to appreciate leaders. The second characteristic of a right relationship is what I'll call esteem. Esteem, verse 13. That you esteem them very highly. That you esteem them very highly. We have a present tense verb here, and that typically points to, the, to an ongoing action. So there's an ongoing attitude of esteem bound up in this. It's to value them because of their worth as leaders. Not necessarily the quality of that work, but the fact that they're doing it, I think, is the issue. Notice also here that Paul just doesn't leave it that you esteem them. He adds here, he adds an adverb very highly, right? Very highly. Interesting adverb here. It's a, it's a piling up aspect. Abundantly, out of all bounds would be another way you could translate that, or, or beyond all measure would be legitimate. That your esteem for the leaders among you should sort of superabound, the apostle is telling them. You know, God cares about how we treat those in authority. Isn't that true? I mean, in, in Romans chapter 13, he speaks of how we are to relate to civil authorities, doesn't he? And he says we're to do what? We're to honor them. We're to honor them. I mean, think with me on this. Reflect on this with me a little here. If we are to honor those in civil authority over us who are, for the most part, unbelievers, and were when this was written, Romans was written, if we are to honor them, how much more true should it be that we would esteem or honor those who come from inside the fellowship that are believers, that are giving of themselves to shepherd the flock? It's kind of biblical reasoning, I call it. If you owe a debt of honor to a civil authority, you owe a greater debt to those that are in leadership among you. And it's a theological reason, you know. It, it, it relates back to authority structures that God establishes. Right? I mean, God set up this whole world with a certain set of authority structures, didn't he? There's the authority structure of parents and children. There's the authority structure of husbands and wives. There's an authority structure of employer and employee, master-slave in the New Testament, there's an authority structure of rulers and the ruled. Well, there's also an authority structure within the church of elders and, and people. And so we are to understand that God has established these authority structures, and we are to give due deference to those that have been placed in positions of leadership by God. By God. I mean, our natural tendency... Let's be honest. Our natural tendency is to take people for granted, isn't it? 
I mean, our natural way of looking at our leaders is to major on their faults and ignore whatever good they've done. I mean, we're in the midst of you know, a political free-for-all in this state, and I'm no apologist for the present governor. But I'm sure he's done something right in all the time that he's been here. And I'm sure there's many people that think he's done a lot that's right. But, but by nature, we sort of forget what people have done, the good things, and we tend to think of the negative things. Isn't that true? I mean, we sort of take people for granted, right? We're not thankful by nature, are we? Not like we should be. Let me give you an example, a biblical example. God gave the nation of Israel the most incredible leader perhaps the world has ever known. In Moses, right? I mean, he delivered the nation out of Egypt. Almost single-handedly. He poured himself out for the people. And at every turn, how did they respond? They grumbled, didn't they? They grumbled. And in fact, in Exodus 17, verse 4, it says, they're ready to stone him. They're going to kill him. Unless we think we're more spiritual than them. Take a little longer look in the mirror. I mean, we're grumblers. We're grumblers. That's part of the old man. That's a behavioral pattern that has to be put off, Ephesians 4, and a new one put on, an attitude of thankfulness. That would be a fruit of the Spirit, wouldn't it? So, no group of elders, no group of deacons is perfect. They all have shortcomings. They're all men with their weaknesses and their sin. But beyond that, every believer in the fellowship sort of has their own unique perspective on how the job should be done. I mean, it's inevitable that even the best leaders fall short. They get accused of pride, bad judgment, doing too much, doing too little. They go too fast, they go too slow, right? They change things too quickly, they change things too slowly. They're too harsh, they're too lenient. It's too hot, it's too cold, you know. Sunday morning, sanctuary. Oh, it's so cold in there, Pastor. Somebody else, man, can't you turn the air conditioner down? I'm dying. You know what? You and you should change seats. I mean, that's our nature. Terrible. That's who we are, though. Christ needs to work in those areas, right? I mean, one commentator said, the exercise of authority is always apt to provoke resentment. I think that's a true statement. The exercise of authority is apt to to, pro to provoke resentment. So esteem, third characteristic of this appeal for right relationships is in love. Verse 13, right? Very highly in love. In love. Agape. Love should characterize the relationship between leaders and the people. Now, there are plenty of verses we can look at that admonish leaders to love their people. This is the verse that admonishes 
people to love who? The leaders. See, it's a both-and kind of a thing. It's a relationship issue. When you love those that are in leadership, really love them, you'll overlook stuff. You'll be more patient. You'll have greater tolerance for their shortcomings, for their mistakes, for their foibles, for their personality quirks. I mean, when, we, when love characterizes our relationship, we think the best of somebody, don't we? That's what comes to our mind first, is that we think the best of them. We put their actions into the best possible light. We don't assume the worst. We don't assume they stayed up late trying to figure out how to mess with us. 